the book of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, beginning to read at verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. We'll end our reading here, and would you join me? Let's have a word of prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the day that Thou hast given to us, Lord. We thank Thee for this springtime of the year and the beauty we see around us for the signs of life. And even as we think of last Sunday, the hope of the resurrection. We thank Thee for the gathering together of God's people. Lord, may Thy blessing rest upon this time today, for we do it in obedience to Thee. And we ask that as we gather in obedience to Thee, and our heart's desire is to worship Thee in spirit and in truth, that you may be pleased to bless this assembly here today and all around the country where people are gathering in the name of Jesus and are worshiping thee in spirit and in truth. Lend thy blessing. May the word of the Lord be glorified and have free course in our midst and in each place where the Bible is opened in truth. We pray thee that it will be a day of advancement for the kingdom of God. May souls be saved. Father, we pray that if there's anybody here in our service or in one of the junior church meetings, anywhere in the building, somebody who doesn't know Jesus as personal Savior, or somebody who has questions about it, somebody who's not altogether sure that if he would die today, that he would be in heaven. Lord, would you use us to that end, and would you bless the Word of God that has been prepared to open and break in our midst these few minutes. I pray, Father, that you will guide and direct me. I pray you will give me utterance, liberty, freedom, and a confidence of your presence. I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. This past Sunday, I was sitting in a minister's seminar in Harrisburg, and it's kind of interesting. You sit in a meeting sometimes in Sunday school class or church service, and so many things seem to be going through your mind. And oftentimes, if you've been meditating on the scriptures or you've been in thought, in prayer about different things, it, it seems like the Lord can pick an occasion like that to just gel in your thinking something that he wants to communicate to you. And I wrote down a thought Monday as I sat in one of those meetings. Something came to me that just sort of crystallized some thoughts and some burdens that I've had on my heart for a while. And it goes like this. Maybe we just need to fall in love again with Jesus. Maybe we just need to fall in love again with Jesus. You know, beloved, as I ponder it, I realize how easy it is for each of us, myself, for each of you, to be distracted from the Lord Jesus when really He is everything. 
Jesus is indeed everything. And if we've missed that point, we've missed the most significant point that there is to know. And yet, if you stop and think about it, even something as important and seemingly noble on one hand and innocuous on the other as service for the Lord can crowd the Lord out. Sometimes service can distract us from Jesus. Sometimes service can become king when really it's Jesus whom we serve. People sometimes can crowd out Jesus. Sometimes people loom, loom very large in our lives. And if we're not careful, sometimes people can obscure Jesus when really Jesus is the one who's the fairest of 10,000 and the bright and morning star. Sometimes it can be things. Do you ever notice how easy it is in this materialistic world in which we live for things to crowd out the Lord? Busyness, schedule, possessions, all those things when we know better, we know that Jesus is the only one who has a right to occupy the throne of our hearts, and sometimes it's very subtle and we don't mean for it to happen. I take some encouragement. This message this morning is nothing to do with rebuke, save as the Spirit of God may minister individually to us. But I take some consolation this morning when I look at this passage of Scripture and I realize that it can happen to any of us. It can happen to all of us. It happened to Peter, James, and John in this particular scene, this story of the transfiguration. And as we look through this together a little bit this morning, I want to work you through a couple of points and try to show you the thoughts that the Lord has given me this week and bring those to your attention as well. First of all, the thing that I sense in this is what we might call understandable excitement. Oh, beloved, when you think about this particular scene in the Bible, this is one of the most fantastic scenes anywhere to be described in the Bible. And here we have Peter, James, and John. And you remember our series on the apostles, and we know that Peter, James, and John represent the inner three. They were chosen and allowed to be there when no one else was, when Jairus' daughter was raised. Peter, James, and John were able to be there and see that and be witness to that. They were here at the Transfiguration account. They were chosen, and they only were allowed to be a part of the Gethsemane scene where Jesus prayed and there's a commonality. They got sleepy that night too, just as they got sleepy here. But you have the inner three. And then you have Jesus. And man, oh man, what a description this is. How that, if we compare the accounts and we look at Luke, we realize that their eyes were heavy with sleep and they had kind of doped off. And it was as they had kind of come back to a little bit of reality of what was going on, all of a sudden they opened their eyes and they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus, but they saw something they weren't prepared for because the Bible tells us that he was transfigured. In other words, his form was changed. And I don't know that we can totally appreciate all that this involves except the description that we have here in our passage, which tells us in verse number 2 that his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. Mark tells us that his garments were whiter, so white, more white than any fuller on earth can white them. And we understand the theology of this. We understand that what was happening was that that glory that Jesus, as he talked about in John chapter 17, that glory that he had with the Father before the world was, the glory that we see to some extent described in that scene in Revelation chapter 1 where he is revealed in his glorified state, that began to ooze, if I can use that word, through. It had been veiled. This we know. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself, made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a man, so that 
the glory of deity that properly belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ had been veiled in that incarnation process. And somehow, in this incarnation scene, that begins to well up from within. It begins to shine forth through his face. One can only imagine what it was like when you think about other descriptions in the Bible. We think about Saul on the Damascus Road and how that light that represented the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, was so bright that it knocked Paul off that beast of burden and blinded him. Well, you can imagine how earth-shaking this was to these men. I mean, you know, if you kind of dope off in a school class sometime and you're fortunate, you kind of come back to reality before the teacher realizes it or before the teacher decides to throw chalk at you or something else like that. But these guys, I mean, I don't really know what the Lord told them to prepare them for this, but they've sort of doped off and all of a sudden they see this supernatural scene involving the Savior. And then they see something else. They see Moses and Elijah. Now you stop and meditate. This is a great passage of Scripture to meditate on because oftentimes somebody will come along with the question and they'll say, Preacher, will we know our loved ones in glory? Yes, you'll know your loved ones in glory. Because when we get to glory, we'll know even as also we are known. But if you want a practical illustration of it, just come here. Jesus didn't tap him on the shoulder and say, Hey, Peter, I just wanted you to know that's Moses over there. Hey, James, I just wanted you to know that that's Elijah over there. He didn't have to do that. Inherently, they knew who these men were. And Luke's account says that they appeared with him in glory. So that again, there was something about their appearance that had every aura of heaven of glory, although their glory obviously would have been different from that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they see these men. Now someone has said that if what the Lord was doing was offering them a foretaste of the kingdom, this is very appropriate because look at verse 28 of chapter 16. Jesus says, Verily I say unto you that there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, if that's what the Lord was trying to do, this was very appropriate because you have a vision of the glorified Christ as he will be when he reigns on the earth in his glorified state for a thousand years, however exactly all that is set up. And then you have Moses. Now, whom would Moses represent? Well, Moses, of course, went the way of all flesh. He died and he passed from this earthly scene. So we might say that Moses is representative of those saints who have gone on and who have walked the veil and have experienced death and are with the Lord in glory. But Elijah was different, remember? The old chariot came and picked up Elijah, and Elijah never walked the veil, not in the sense that most people do. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. But you have two exceptions to that in the Bible. You have Enoch and you have Elijah. And someone has pointed out, Elijah then is representative of people who are alive on the earth when Jesus comes back the second time, actually to the earth to set up his kingdom. And so many, many people saved, now many will be martyred, but people saved during the tribulation period, there will be those, and then there is Christ. And so it's little wonder that these men, when they see this tremendous scene, they're overwhelmed by it. And who wouldn't have said exactly what Peter said? He said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Now, I don't know whether you would fancy yourself desirous of being Peter or James or John or one of the other apostles, but... Peter seems to be the spokesman. And, uh, of course, that puts a little extra weight of responsibility on you if you're going to be the one doing the talking. And <laughs> in this particular case, poor old Peter. I mean, Peter's heart was right. But you can sure understand what he was saying when he said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I mean, this is great if we were going to put this in the vernacular. 
Well, then we move from what we could call understandable excitement. What, what, what one of us, beloved, would not have been excited as these men were excited on this occasion to what I might describe as a natural tendency? I think we have to realize that this was awesome. They were overwhelmed by what they saw. And yet when you look carefully and you think for a while about what Peter said, you realize that Peter missed the point. And I'm sure the other men did too. What did Peter say? Well, in verse number 4, then answered Peter, and by the way, if you compare this with Luke's account, Luke chapter 9, verse 33, you find an interesting thing out. You find that they had kind of doped off and you find out that they had sort of stirred a little bit and come back into some stage of alertness and it was as they did that that Moses and Elijah, the Bible says, were departing. Now that's a very significant detail because they apparently missed some of it in which Moses and Elijah had been there and they were talking, according to Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, they were talking with Jesus about his decease, about his death that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Somewhere in this process, these men stir, they wake up, they see what's going on, but they catch it just as it's ending. So that Moses and Elijah, and exactly how this is happening, I'm not sure, were in the process of departing, and they realized this. And so Peter blurts something out. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, I say, he missed the point. And I certainly don't speak self-righteously because I think if you or I had been there, we would probably have done the very same thing. That's why I say I think we find here an understandable excitement and we find a natural tendency. What is that natural tendency? Well, he made a mistake in what he said. And the reason that we can say that he made a mistake in what he said is because we understand now. And he understands now as we look at this story and as we look at the context of it that the point was Jesus. Oh, men and women, this morning, let me tell you something. Jesus is the point of everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the ending, the first and last, saith the Lord of hosts. He's everything. He's the point of today. Did you know that? Did you know that if we came here and we're looking at something else or our eyes are focused on something else beyond Jesus, even to the point of preaching God's Word, if our eyes are on a man, if we're looking at a Sunday school teacher, if we've been distracted by anything, if we didn't come here today with our heart set on seeing Jesus and worshiping Jesus, I'm telling you, He's the point of everything. And He's not just the point of the Lord's Day. You know what? When you wake up tomorrow, He's the point of tomorrow. I hope you get with your Bible first thing. I hope you open your Bible and I hope you pray. And I hope that helps you set the tone for the day because Jesus is the point of your day. He is the point of everything. And the minute that becomes obscured and the minute we miss that, we fall into this trap that we see these men falling into in this. And he said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Now, why did he make a mistake? Or how can we see the mistakes that he made in this statement? Well, he said, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And there's the implication in that of equality. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for you, Moses, and one for you, Elijah, I'll tell you something, as illustrious as Elijah was of all the prophets, and if we think about the Old Testament, I don't know that we would come up with a greater person, the great lawgiver. 
a person who was more revered by the Jews than was Moses. And among the prophets, no one more revered than Elijah. So, in a sense, you have representatives here of the greatest characters of the Old Testament. But to equate them with Jesus, they aren't even on the same plane. No one's on the same plane with Jesus. But there's another mistake, because what did Peter say? He not only implied that there was an equality there and missed the point that God wanted to make, and I'll talk about that in just a second, but he also implied that it would be good to stay. Now, what was wrong with that? You see, he was all for making tabernacles so they could stay. What was wrong with that? Well, back up to the context, what's happened? If you go back into chapter 16, Jesus has taken the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He's put them in a position by asking them a question. Whom, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, he said, some say Moses, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. He says, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter. It was Peter. Bless his heart. He got some things right. And he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately, take a look at this, back up into chapter 16, look at verse 21. Immediately after this, it says, From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And it was that that led Peter to do one of the things that I'm sure he regretted for the rest of his life. Now, God forgives us for our sins. Thank the Lord for this. But Peter was confused. He'd made this great confession, and the thing that he said was true because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. But how does it make sense for the Christ if you're a good Old Testament Jew and you're thinking about the Old Testament and you're thinking about the kingdom and all these things that have been promised to Israel and the glories of Israel and the glories of the kingdom, how does it make sense for Jesus to be talking about going to Jerusalem and being betrayed Peter didn't exactly cotton to that. That didn't really go with his plans. That didn't really go with his theology. And he rebuked the Lord, and the Lord had to rebuke him. And we know that story. And it was on the heels of this that Jesus said, Okay, Peter, I could, under I could understand your confusion. And so I want to reinforce you. I want you to understand that what you said concerning me, even though you don't understand all this business about going to Jerusalem and being crucified and dying, what you said concerning me is absolutely true. So, not many days hence, there's some of you that are here that are going to taste not of death first before you see the kingdom come with power. So he took them up into that mountain and the whole point of it was, as he was transfigured before them and they saw his glory, for them to realize that no matter what they didn't understand, and beloved, there's a whole lot we don't understand, right? But God has given us some things that we can understand. Well, no matter what I don't understand, no matter what you don't understand, Peter, you're right about this one thing. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. And I'm going to reinforce that in your heart and in your mind. And these guys got up there, and they were just like you and me. They were tired and... and I don't know quite why, but they got a little bit drowsy, and all of a sudden they, they, they open their eyes, they look, and they see this incredible scene in which Jesus shows them he's a supernatural being. He's the second person of the blessed Holy Trinity. He's the Son of God. And they saw this. And what else did they see? Well, Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah were there, and they were talking with Jesus about his decease. Well, that was meant to reinforce the fact. It's, it's as if you have the representatives of the Old Testament there to say, 
you know, because there were so many times, and I speak reverently, like that time in the throng, Jesus turned around and he said, who touched me? You remember that? And they thought he was nuts. They said, Master, the crowd's thronging you. People are all over the place, and you say, who touched me? How many times do you and I do the very same thing? Something Jesus says, and we're so arrogant because it doesn't make sense to us. We're so arrogant as to assume the Lord doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, this is sort of one of those times, and it's almost like Peter and those guys are thinking this makes no sense. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's talking about going to Jerusalem and being killed in Jerusalem. That doesn't jive with what we know. And so here you have the representatives of the Old Testament there. You have Moses, you have Elijah. And what are they talking with him about? Not tiddlywinks. They're talking with him about his decease. And this whole scene is designed to reinforce in Peter and James and John as the lead disciples that yes, this is of God. Jesus is not just saying some strange thing. He's not just off on one of those tangents again. He knows what he's talking about. But it's right at the moment that they come back to consciousness and they see this tremendous scene. And then, as I told you, this is such an important detail. Moses and Elijah, in some sense, they can tell these men are beginning to recede out of the picture. They're departing. And it's right at that moment that Peter speaks. He jumps to life. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. We want you to stay. We want you to make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And they missed the point. Because how often is it that we take Jesus for granted? You know, I really sort of believe as human as they were and as human as you and I are, they'd been with Jesus every day, three, three and a half years. They were used to Jesus. But you know what? They'd never seen Moses before, right? They'd never seen Elijah before. Have you? I haven't. I love these guys. I think if I saw a scene like this and I'd been with Jesus every day for three, three and a half years, I think I'd be looking at Moses. I think I'd be looking at Elijah. Wow. Oh, beloved, I think we make this mistake. I think we miss the point. We get so used to Jesus. We get so used to God in our lives. We get so used to his salvation. And what do we want to do? We want to hold on to other things. We don't want to let them go because they excite us, because they're important to us. And I'm not minimizing the importance of Moses and Elijah, but they wanted it to stay. They wanted it to last. They didn't want these guys to go away. And they were missing the point because the point was Jesus. And so you come to the last, and the last is a gentle correction. You know what? God is so kind. He remembers our frame. He knows that we're dust. See, I'm not preaching down. I'm not preaching down to you, and I'm not preaching down to me, because I think everything that happened here is so natural and so understandable, but it isn't right either. And God says, I can't let this stand. And he wouldn't let it stand. And what do we read about? We read about the fact that a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from within that cloud, a voice that said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. Because as great a person as Moses is, and as great a person as Elijah is, there is none like Jesus. None like Jesus. And any time that we get to the point in our lives that something begins to obscure Him, however unintentional it is, even though we didn't mean it, it happens to us. You know God is going to intervene. Somehow He's going to work. I hope and pray gently, but He's going to work because if we've gotten our eyes off Jesus, 
if it's people, if it's things, if it's service, I don't care what it is, that have begun to cloud our vision, God's going to deal with us. He's going to show us Jesus is the point. And you know something? If we don't get one little thing out of the Old Testament, we're going to miss the whole thing here. So let me get you to turn to one scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses made a promise, or he, yes, he made a promise, but it was a prophecy. And I want to read you this because if we miss this, we'll miss the theology that's here, and this theology is the power behind this. Moses prophesied something, and it was a messianic prophecy, and I think everybody here understands this, but he prophesied this. He said, The Lord thy God, Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, will raise up unto thee a prophet, from the midst of thee, out of thy brethren, like unto me, he, unto him shall ye hearken. Or let's put it the way it was in the New Testament. Him shall ye hear, or hear ye him. Moses was going to pass off the scene, but God was going to raise up somebody else. Somebody else who was enduring. Somebody else who was everlasting. Somebody else who was greater than Moses. Someone whose words were so important and so significant. Look at verse 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. You remember when Jesus came on the scene and they sent the Pharisees to find out who he was? One of the questions they asked, Art thou... That prophet? Remember that? And when God the Father uttered those words, this is my beloved son, same words that he uttered at Christ's baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. He was identifying him as that prophet that transcended Moses, that transcends Elijah, that transcends every other human instrument that God has ever used. But because they missed the point, just like you and I tend to miss the point, because their vision was obscured, because they wanted to hold on to Moses and they wanted to hold on to Elijah, and they were more stricken with the glory of that and less impressed with Jesus, whom they had begun to take for granted, what did God do? Every time that happens, he's going to correct the problem. And he took them away. You know that? He took them away. He sent that cloud, and as that cloud overshadowed them, they never saw Moses and Elijah again. And you think about that. They never saw Moses and Elijah again. But you know what they saw? They saw my text. And when they lifted up their eyes, verse number 8, they saw no man save Jesus only. How gentle God is, how kind God is to remember our frame, to know that it's dust, to know that this happens to us just like it happened to the disciples that Busyness comes along, things come along, even noble things, sometimes people, and we lose track of the point, why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing, why we get up in the morning, why we go to work, why we read our Bible. Hey, you don't read your Bible to check off some mark on a reading calendar. 
You read your Bible because, as the songwriter says, beyond the sacred page, I seek the Lord. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we preach. That's why we live. He's the point of it all. And sometimes when the Lord sees that something has overshadowed that, something has obscured our vision, he fixes it. But, you know, I like it because it says here, Jesus came and touched them, put his hand on them. You know, there's just, there's just something reassuring about that. You know when you're hurting, when your heart hurts, when you're afraid, they were afraid. And there's somebody that's close to you, somebody that knows you. Sometimes it's even somebody who doesn't know you. Comes and puts his hand on your shoulder and just says something that's kind. Doesn't even have to be a Christian. I've had people that are unsaved do that to me before, and it meant as much as anything. They were just good people. They just wanted to be a brother. They just wanted to shed compassion abroad. And he's so tender. He's so kind. He could have reamed them out. He could have said, don't you know who I am? I've been with you so long, you don't know who I am? Oh, he was frustrated, perhaps on that occasion when Philip came along and said, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. You remember that? And he said, have I, have I been so long with you, Philip, and hast thou not known me? How many times he must have been frustrated that they couldn't get the point that they got their eyes on so many other things, the glories of the kingdom. There is no glory of the kingdom if the king isn't there. You know, I'm convinced there's some people that can have church. I hope it isn't here, but some people could go to church on Sunday and they don't need the Holy Spirit because they've got it all planned right down to the last degree, got it all organized right down to the last degree, and they don't need the Holy Spirit. And they don't need Jesus either because they've got stained glass windows and a stately building and all sorts of things. And you know, as much as I like some of those things myself, when they begin to take the place of Jesus, it has happened before that God's burned buildings like that down. Somehow God's going to fix the problem when our eyes get off Jesus. But thank God, in most cases, he's so gentle in doing that. I'll tell you a little something here as I close the message today. I guess God knows what he's doing. Now, isn't that a profound statement for a preacher to make? Several weeks ago, I guess maybe four or five weeks ago now, because it took a couple weeks to get here, I received a periodical, a little advertisement in the mail, and it was an advertisement from a place called Virginia's Gentleman Books. And I never heard of them before, and I really didn't know how they got my name, but I got to looking at the books they had to offer, and I really wanted every one of them. But there was one, I finally decided I'll buy one of these books, and it was a book called Rhapsody in Black. And you say, what's that? Well, it's the life of John Jasper. Now, I don't know how many people here this morning know who John Jasper is. I'm just curious. How many people have ever heard of John Jasper before? Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, you guys live at home. That's not fair. Not many people have. Well, don't feel bad because it was only a couple of years ago when we were either coming back from or going to vacation, we stopped at Lonnie Stinson's church in Richmond, Virginia, Southside Baptist Temple. We support evangelizing black Americans. And I always like to go there because I'll tell you, when you get... When you get a good black church like that where they preach the Bible and they really do their stuff, they've got something nobody else can touch. They just do. So we were there for that particular service, and they had some sort of a, uh, emphasis going on uh, significant black Americans. But you know something? They weren't towing the political line, which was so refreshing. So we didn't hear about the ones you hear in the school books and everywhere else that 
I'd have never put in to start with. We heard about some of the ones you don't hear about. And I first heard about John Jasper there that day, planted a little seed. And I got kind of curious about the thing. So when I got this advertisement, I knew exactly what I was looking at. And I said, I want that book. So I sent for the book. Well, my wife can tell you I got this book. And we joke about these kind of things. But you, sometimes you get a book, you can't put it down. Well, I could put it down, but I didn't put it down long. I just kept reading and reading and reading this book that tells the story of the life of John Jasper. He was born on the 4th of July, 1812, antebellum south, Richmond, Virginia, slavery times. And he grew up a slave. And God gave him almost 89 years because he didn't die until March 28, 1901. John Jasper became one of the most notable black preachers that America has ever produced. An incredible evangelist, an incredible pastor, an incredible orator. It's just got to be so that when we get to heaven, God's going to give us a church house that we can go hear some of these people preach. I want to go hear Spurgeon preach. I want to go hear people like Jasper preach. Well, Jasper always had a... He started out almost immediately telling people about Jesus. And, but as things went on, he began to develop a reputation as a plantation funeral preacher. Now, if you don't know anything about the Old South... I feel sorry for you because you're going to have to do some honest research to find the truth. All you'll find is garbage in most places. But when they had a funeral on the plantation, it was a big deal. And if it was a slave that died, they'd have a black preacher come. Now, they, most times it was required also to have a white preacher. But, of course, the black preacher was the one that really meant something to the blacks. And Jasper, that's where he cut his teeth preaching. Funeral sermons on plantations. And after a while, it got to the place where if you, could, if you didn't have Jasper, you didn't have anything. Nobody else could meet the Jasper standard in a funeral service. He, he acquired an incredible fame in that preaching. But he always had a burden and he always had a desire to be a pastor. Well, after the war, he was a free man. Then he could be a pastor. And in 1867, he became the pastor of a little church. Get this, nine members, $9 a week. That's easy to remember. $9 a week, nine members. In Richmond, Virginia, 6th Mount Zion Baptist Church. Somebody says there were five others. No, they just liked the name. Sixth Mount Zion Baptist Church. And they went through building program after building program after building program, and soon the church was so full they didn't know what to do with the people. They had over 1,000 members. Whites were regularly in attendance. People that laughed about it and kidded other people and said, why you go to Jasper's church? When they came to see what was going on, they didn't have anything to say anymore because sooner or later they all left in tears because he was known for being able to talk about his Jesus. Hatcher, William Hatcher, who was a very prominent scholarly white pastor of the First Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, for over 20 years, went on afternoons to hear Jasper preach. Somebody said to William Hatcher, Dr. Hatcher, on one occasion, said, why do you go there? He said, his English is terrible. He said, I don't go there to hear his English. He said, I go to hear him talk about his Jesus. Well, the story I want to tell you as quickly as I can is in March of 1901. And it was the first Sunday of the month. And by reason of his health, because he was only about four months away from being 89 years old, they sort of wondered if maybe that was going to be the last Sunday. And he was preaching that morning and he said, My children, he said, My work on earth is finished. But he said, I was no more scared of death than of a horse fly. 
And there was a woman that sobbed out loud and there were other people who began to weep and Jasper sensed what the occasion was like and he wanted of course to prepare his people for what he figured was going to come. So he broke into his sermon on heaven. Now Jasper had a sermon on heaven. And Jasper, when he preached, he'd come to the pulpit and he'd take his Bible. Yes, he knew how to read. That was one of the first things he learned, was how to read so he could read his Bible. He'd open the Bible, he'd read his text, and he'd close his Bible. Well, that morning, he opened his Bible and he read that count about the great white throne. In other words, Revelation chapter 20. And he closed his Bible. So he broke into this sermon on heaven. And as Jasper, as the sermon itself is recorded and as the story goes, Jasper pictured himself at the gate of heaven. And there at the gate of heaven, he found that he had angel trouble. Now, you know what angel trouble is? The angel says, John Jasper, you don't deserve to be here. I knows it, he said. But I ain't counting on coming in on my own merits. I'm counting on coming in on the merits of my Jesus. Oh, that's rich. Man, that's rich. And the angel flings open the gates of heaven. He says, I can't bar the doors against anybody that talks that way. You know that's true. You get there to the gate of heaven and you start telling God about coming in because of your good works and because of your baptism and because of what your family tree is, you might as well forget it. But if you're there on the merits of Jesus, nobody bars the door to anybody that comes to heaven and talks that way. Well, Jasper gets inside and the angel says to him, Mr. Jasper said, now you're in a position to talk to all those people you've preached about. And he started in. He said, would you like to talk to Moses? Well, Moses, of course, had been somebody who had meant a great deal to these slavery time people. You see, you think about Moses, and Moses went to Pharaoh, and seven times he said, let my people go. So the way Jasper put it, he said, Moses done hold out the handkerchief of hope, and it dried our tears. He said, when he got to the end of that account, yes, I want to talk to Moses, but not now. And the angel started through the list of Old Testament characters. Well, what about Joshua, Caleb, David, Isaiah? And each time he'd mention one of these names, Jasper would go into some sort of a description about, yes, how much he wanted to talk to that person. But every time he'd come to the end of it and he'd say, yes, but not now. Well, the angel switched over to the New Testament. John, Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, Simon of Cyrene. And each time, Jasper would go into one of these descriptions about how much pleasure he would find in talking to those people. But each time, he'd come to the end of it and say, yes, I want to talk to him, but not now. Well, the angel's a little frustrated by now, and so the angel finally says, oh, you want to talk to your mother. You want to talk to Tina. She lives in a great mansion now. He said, yes. He said, I want to talk to mom. He said, she gave me to God before I was born and prayed me into glory when I was a wild, reckless boy. Prayed me into preaching the gospel. Yes, I want to see my mother, but not now. And by now, the angel doesn't know what to do with himself, and he says to Jasper, well, Jasper, who do you want to see? And the old preacher, three weeks from his death, summons up all the strength that's left in him to preach that sermon, holds his hands up like this to the sky and says, Oh, angel, 
Just lead me before the great white throne and let me gaze a thousand years into the face of my Jesus. Yeah, that's it. He got the point. Jesus is the point. They saw no man save Jesus only. You know, we started this morning with a song, just the chorus, bugs me sometimes when they just give us the chorus to these hymns, but Jesus is the sweetest name I know. The second stanza reminds us, there is no name in earth or heaven above that we should give such honor and such love. As the blessed name, let us all acclaim that wondrous, glorious name of Jesus. Jesus is the sweetest name I know, and he's just the same as his lovely name, and that's the reason why I love him so. For Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Father, meet us where we are today. We know that you always do. Whatever the need, whatever the situation that you intend this message to deal with, may it bring to us the balm of Gilead. And if we need some gentle correction, such as what the apostles did that day, because for whatever reason, intentional or unintentional, we realize that something has obscured our vision of him. Jesus is the point. Then I pray, Lord, you'll just tug at our hearts today. Give us what we need. Help us to refocus on him who is the beginning and the end. And who should live on every day in between as we find ourselves a part of this earthly pilgrimage. Help the dear people of God here today. And Lord, if there's somebody in this service today that didn't really know what I was talking about because they've never met the Savior, help them to realize that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish and have everlasting life. For those of us who know him, I pray that the Spirit of God would take the thought that we heard today. Maybe we just need to fall in love again with Jesus and weave it into the course of our day today and into the course of our day tomorrow. Slowly but surely reveal to us things that have taken his place or things that have, where we've brushed him aside. Other things have taken his place. We've become too busy. We take him for granted. Help us not to do that, Lord. Help us to love Jesus with all of our hearts. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I wonder if there's somebody here today who says, Pastor, you may not know all the circumstances, but I now know God brought me here today to hear this sermon because I now know that I've let some things push him aside. He used to be in the place of devotion. You missed that. Something's pushed him aside. You used to love him, but maybe it could be said of you, like the Ephesian church, that we need to repent and do the first works because we've left our first love. Even in our service, we become frustrated because we lose our first love, because the irritations and the frustrations of our service distract us from the love of life, the love of it all, the reason we do it. Whatever it is that God has helped you with and spoken to your heart today, join me, would you, with an uplifted hand and say, Preacher, include me in the prayer that God will help me 
with what he wanted me to hear today that I'll apply it to my life. Here's my hand, preacher. Include me in the prayer. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you.